we've been moving along in the book of Acts following this series of becoming his church. And really, that's, it's intentional. The, the title's intentional. We, we don't want to be a church. We want to be his church. And what does that mean um, as we look through uh, the book of Acts? And just to quickly review, you know, we've seen some recurring characteristics, recurring traits that we see about a church. Um, one is that the church is, is devoted, as, as you know, John preached on last week, there's devotion to the teaching of the word. Devotion to the teaching of the word. And, and understand, it's not like, oh yeah, I, I get some teaching. No, it, there's a devotion to it. It's, it's, it's this, th- this is something that becomes you know, predominant in what we do. Um, that we, we hunger after God's word. We want to know more. If, if John and I or any other teachers are, are just spoon feeding you when you're ready for a, for a big old shovelful, then you, know, you need to tell us. If, if you've been drinking milk because you're new in your faith and you're ready for more, you know, we need to know because you know, our responsibility is to, is to bring to you um, you know, God's word, and we want to not just be devoted to, to learning and to the teaching of God's word, but also to the living of it. But we also saw prayer, worship, and fellowship. And you know, once in a while, I like to take a little quick step back um, to just to, to talk about a word that we talk about a lot, and this is, this is still preface to the sermon, we, we're not there yet, but but a word, words we talk about a lot, we, we don't necessarily unpack. If I were to ask you, what does fellowship mean? You know, and we're supposed to be devoted to fellowship, and I was gonna ask, what, what does fellowship mean? What does fellowship look like? Um, we would, you know, we might get a lot of answers, we might get a lot of, uh, I don't knows, or uh, maybe the, uh, you know, the worst opening line to uh, papers, uh, re, uh, you know, papers that students write, Fellowship is many things to many people. It's like, might as well not say anything at this point. And all of you are like, man, I know I wrote that at least once in high school. Um, But fellowship, maybe we shouldn't ask what does fellowship look like, but maybe the better question is, what does fellowship result in? Because I I think what happens is fellowship um, is gonna look different in a lot of different places. Fellowship's gonna look different even in this church between different groups of people. Um, Whether you're a a new believer or you've been a believer for a long time or there's a mix in the group, fellowship's gonna look different. Whether you know people personally outside the church or you know them in the church or they're in your family, fellowship's gonna look different, but what should fellowship result in? And here's my attempt to try to help you understand that. True fellowship True Christian fellowship results in a deeper understanding of each other's spiritual condition. In other words, just having dinner together or having lunch together, that's great. And those things can be like a precursor or they can be something that helps bring us to understanding each other's spiritual condition more. But it's not true fellowship. True fellowship is gonna happen over time, it can't be programmed, I can't prompt it, I can't say like, well let's all sit down in a circle and talk about each other's spiritual condition. It's gonna be us engaged in life together. 
It's going to come up in conversations. It's going to come up as we serve together, as we face life struggles together. And it's not that I just know facts about you. Fellowship is not me knowing about your family and you know, about your hobbies and all this. All that stuff is great. But that's not the, the, the true result of fellowship. The true result of fellowship is I know more about your spiritual condition and you know more about mine. You know my struggles. You know my, my, my strengths. We, we understand the questions that, that we're facing. We know where we are on the spiritual journey. We know how to walk together. And I cannot emphasize enough that if, if we're going to have the kind of unity, that kind of, that kind of community transforming unity that, that John talked about last week, it comes from, from fellowship, true fellowship, and the result of that is us, of us knowing this. And this is hard. It's hard for us because, because this is more than just sharing my hopes and dreams. This is people actually getting to see the, both what's clean in my heart and what's dirty. It's letting people see not just where my faith is, but where my doubts are. And that takes a high level of trust, a high level of love. And so you can't just rush there. We can't, again, we can't just have, we're going to have fellowship night and we're going to sit around and talk about this stuff. No. But that's what the result is. And so the question you can ask yourself, especially, you know, if you've been here at this church or if you go to another church, but if you've been at a church for any period of time, who do you truly have fellowship with? Who do you know more and more about their spiritual condition and they know about yours? Well, that was all free stuff, had nothing to do with the sermon today, but I wanted to make sure we got something that we can kind of hook our brains on, something that's kind of down, you know, right here that we can, we can actually kind of look at and assess. Well, it is in some way connected because what we're going to talk about today is we're going to talk about this pattern we've seen so far, and it's this pattern of the early church, there's a sign. You know, in, at the beginning of chapter two, there's the sign. The sign is the, the Holy Spirit comes upon the early believers, and the sign is they go out into the community, speaking in languages they hadn't learned, sharing the gospel. And then there's, this, then there's the sermon. And then we find, at, you know, People are being added to their number. And then today we're going to look at another sign, but in between there was the sign that John talked about last week, and it's the sign of the church, the church being the church. And so this idea of true fellowship is tied into this idea of that's the sign. And it's because this is how a lot of people are and a lot of us are. People need to see the power of Jesus before they will believe the gospel of Jesus. People need to see the power of Jesus before they will believe the gospel of Jesus. 
We're going to unpack that more and more, but, but let me just tell you what should be spinning around in your head is that the way God has set it up, and again, you can question God's wisdom on this, but this is how he set it up. He says, I am going to reveal myself through my people. We are the sign. We are the evidence. When we show God's love for each other, when we show God's love for strangers, when we show God's love for our enemies, we are the sign. When we come together as a church, as a community, and the way we, we, we interact with each other, the way we think of each other, the way we forgive each other, work towards reconciliation, how our relationships grow, it's the sign, it's the evidence. But make no mistake, if, if you proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and there is no evidence of the gospel of Jesus Christ doing anything in your life, you're only saying words. Oh, God can still use those words. God can save that person, but God hasn't saved you. Because the power of Jesus Christ, when the power of Jesus Christ comes in our lives, we cannot help but be changed. There cannot help but be evidence. And if there is no evidence, we have to ask ourselves, do we really believe? Well, we come to this text and the church has grown from 120 to thousands. And it's happened rapidly in just a few days. And we come to this story in chapter 3. We don't know how much time has passed. All we know is that it's, you know, it's probably relatively um, you know, within the first few months, relatively recent. But it says, now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God, and all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what happened to him. You know, we get really, like, we, we see this miracle and, and, our, and our attention goes to the miracle. Our attention, even our questions like, you know... Did this really happen? Was this some kind of psychosomatic thing? Or, you know, is this just an embellishment? Or if we think, no, this really happened, this was a miracle, we're so like, oh, this is awesome. You know, this is, this is the power of God 
that healed this, healed, healed this man, and we focus on the miracle, and it's, that's fine, because that means the miracle's doing its job. But unfortunately, we don't, we, we give the miracle more, more responsibility, more of a job than intended. The miracle's a sign. The miracle draws attention. But what the miracle doesn't do is the miracle, miracles do not transform lives. Miracles do not transform lives. Oh yes, the person who couldn't walk can walk. And yes, his life could be better, but maybe not. Maybe not. Maybe, you know, now that he can walk, you know, he spent his whole life crippled, how's he gonna make a living now? You know, after he's kind of danced around, it's hard to sit back down at the stairs and start asking for money again. Is everything gonna be better? Maybe, maybe not. But the miracle was, was simply to, to be a sign, to draw attention. You see, what we believe as Christian is that the transformation of lives is the work of the Holy Spirit. The work of the Holy Spirit, and you might say, well, that's a miracle. Yeah, it's a miracle in a different sense. But when we think about these, these great events, these great signs, you know, if somebody came, came today and, and they were, they were, you know, they, they, they said, you know, they told us, you know, or it was obvious that they had some physical problem, whether they were blind or they, you know, couldn't, couldn't walk. And if me or even one of you just prayed over that person right here in front of all of us and all of a sudden they were healed, we would celebrate. It would be great. But it wouldn't change lives. How long would that last? Next week, a lot more people might be here. But why are they here? Are they here to dig deep into God's word? Or are they here to see another, another amazing healing? And if we couldn't reproduce it, if we couldn't get someone else healed, then what happens? All those people coming to see the miracles, what are they going to do? They're going to go away. That's what they did to Jesus. I'm pretty sure they'll do the same to us. It's the work of the Spirit. The miracles get the attention. They fill as it says there, they filled, it, they filled the people with wonder and amazement. But notice, a sermon still needed to be preached. The gospel still needed to be proclaimed. Why? Because if people saw that, what Peter and John did, some of them might have heard, some of them might have thought, oh, he said in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, some of them might have understood, some of them might have connected, but a lot of them wouldn't. A lot of them would have just said, you know, it's for some other reason. 
or they might have misunderstood that all Jesus Christ of Nazareth is there to do is to provide physical healing. The sermon still needed to be preached. And that means there's nothing wrong with miracles as long as we allow miracles to be what they are. They're signs. They get people's attention. But the gospel still needs to be proclaimed. And that's what happens. If you look in the next few verses, it says, while he, the guy who was healed, clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter... Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses and his name. By faith in his name has made this man strong whom you see and know and how the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. What does Peter do? He sees them look at him we talked about this last week, that because God chooses to work through people, because God chooses to work through natural processes, we start to ignore God. We start to think, no, it's not about God. It's not God working through those people. It's, it's, those people are just talented. Those people are just smart. Those people are just organized. And we sometimes have that tendency ourselves that when, even though we might start off knowing that anything that we do that's of any value to God is God at work in us, but God still wants to use us, work through us, use our abilities, we, we ourselves can fall into that temptation of, of starting to believe our success is due to our contributions. If I'm a musician, it's because of my extraordinary talent that people are blessed. If I'm a vocalist, it's because of my, you know, the way that I sing. If, you know, if I'm a preacher or teacher, it's because of my diligent study. And we can quickly start to take credit for it. And by the way, you are called to bring your best efforts. But if you're in the business of of transforming people's lives into the image of Christ, the greatest preacher cannot do that. The greatest song ever written cannot do that. The greatest teacher cannot do that. It's the work of the Spirit in our lives It's the work of God through us. And what we see Peter do immediately, immediately he says, why are you looking at us? We didn't do this. We didn't do this because we're holy. 
We didn't do this because we have some kind of conduit of power. No, God's doing this. We just happen to be here. We just happen to be the ones who, have, who were given the opportunity to say it. But this is God at work. And it's not just God at work. It's God at work in the name and the power of Jesus Christ. And so what we see Peter and John do is not take credit for the signs, not take credit for the miracles, not take credit for the healing. Instead, they simply do what what Jesus has wanted his church to do and to continue to do, and that is to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what he does. The attention is turned directly towards Jesus Christ. And what Peter is doing here, again, it's the same, it's the same thing that we should be doing as we grow in our faith, as people see signs, either signs of our church or signs in our individual lives of Christ at work, of his spirit at work, of us conforming more and more into the image of, of, this, of the Son, of being transformed. As people see that sign, and they, and they come, and like these people come in wonder and amazement, like, you know, you know, I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but I've heard some people, you know, tell me they've had this, where they haven't seen a high school friend for you know, 10, 15, 20 years, and then suddenly they run into them, and they, you know, this, you know, the person who's talking to me has, has been a Christian for a while, and, and their high school friend, they'll, sit, they'll, they'll say like, they'll, they'll look at them and go, you're a Christian? Really? Can't believe it. But that's the wonder and the amazement. That's the sign. That's the opportunity to then say, here's why. It's not because of me. It's because of Christ in me. It's not because of my power and my sheer will to modify my behavior and become a better person. It's because of the power of the Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, God's love that's poured out on me. And it's hard. We like the compliments. We want to take credit. You know, I see churches that do this sometimes. And then other churches, you know, and by the way, I just, I say this and I don't want to, I'm not being critical. But churches that are looking to grow, they'll, they'll look for the latest book on how to grow as a church. They'll go, they'll go to every conference, the latest strategy. And by the way, we do conferences here. I have no problem with doing these things provided we have the proper understanding. Because what often happens is people coming to those things or reading those books, they think church growth is going to happen because of the strategy. They think church growth is going to happen because of you know, the way you put that team together and you organize everything. 
And again, all these things can be helpful. But if we want God to do something here in this church, then we need to believe that anything of value is ultimately going to be the work of Jesus Christ, the power of his gospel, the work of the Spirit. Because we're not simply here to draw a crowd. We're here to to be the community of faith to be the one body in Christ. And it's so tempting. It's so tempting. If in four or five years, I guarantee you, if in four or five years, Wiley Baptist Church had, you know, four services, you know, we're expanding our campus, we got, you know, thousands of people coming. You know, I'm pretty sure John and I would be tempted to write a book on how we did it and how you can do it too. Right? I mean, we would be tempted, and we may do it, but I would hope that if I did anything like that, I would include here, it's not because of the strategy. It's because of what Jesus Christ did in our lives and did in our church. When I talk about miracles, you know, I try to use the general way that miracles are talked about as these supernatural events, but I also talk about what I consider the two greatest miracles, and those of you who came Wednesday night, you, you heard it. And these two greatest miracles, they're, they're attached to what, um, what Peter is saying and what Paul's gonna unpack later on. That faith in Jesus Christ means that we believe in the resurrection. And as Paul will unpack for us in 1 Corinthians later on, he's going to tell us that, that the resurrection power is, res, is it's essential to our faith, but it's also essential to our Christian lives because we walk in that resurrection power. And how is that resurrection power demonstrated? And I think it's in the two greatest miracles. The two greatest miracles that happen every single day for the past 2,000 years Every single day, we keep praying sometimes for miracles, and we want those miracles to be some, some spectacular supernatural event out there, and yet these miracles that happen every day, we walk by them, and we don't celebrate them. And what are those two greatest miracles? Well, the first one is this, that God, through Jesus Christ, can take a dead heart and make it alive again. As Paul wrote in Ephesians, you were dead in your sins. You had no hope. This isn't a Marvel movie where the superhero comes back to life in some you know, special way. No, you're dead. You're really dead. It's where you know, Wizard of Oz gets it right. You're really quite sincerely dead. You're, the house has landed on you. You're not getting up. But the resurrection power of Jesus Christ takes that dead heart and makes that heart alive. I don't know how many of you were born this way. I, I, if you were born with unconditional love, I'd like to meet you. You must have been the most awesome baby growing up. You must have been an incredible toddler growing up. 
unconditional love. In fact, I'm pretty sure that if you were someone who had agape love from when you were really young, even if you had Christian parents, they would have talked you out of it. They would have, you know, when you, when you came home and the bully, you're talking about the bullies, and your parents are like, bullies, you know, tell me who they are, I'll go take care of them. And it's like, no, no, I love the bullies. I love them because I love my enemies. And, and I'm thinking about how I can bless them. We'd be like, son, that's, no, that's not right. You want to bless them? Right blessing, left blessing. That's the blessings that you need to bring. We would talk them out of it. We know that this is not natural to us. But when Jesus makes a dead heart alive, it's not manufactured love. It's not a forced activity that looks like love. We really love our enemies. The second great miracle happens every day is when God unites his people. When he unites people, not based on age, not based on interest, not based on gender, not based on ethnicity, but when he unites his people and they're united with the same supernatural love. It's a miracle. It's a miracle. Other than what we see in the Gospels, there's no earthly reason why a bunch of people who aren't related, we're not family, we don't have the same jobs, we come from many different walks of life, and yet we'll gather here on, on a Sunday. Many of you will, will form friendships with people who are vastly different from you. We'll serve together, like we did last week at, at Next Step. We'll study together, we'll worship together, We'll care about people. You know, I've said one of the greatest, greatest signs that, that you can demonstrate the, you know, how God has just changed our lives and you, you know, united you and given you this love for each other. You know, one of the examples I used to use was that if I went to, like, um, one of my daughter's ballet recitals, which lasted for, like, I thought they lasted for 12 hours, but I think they were only three. Um, and my daughter was only on for like three minutes, but I had to sit through the whole thing, and we didn't have smartphones. Um, if I knew there was a bunch of people from a church, and that wasn't, they didn't have a kid in the recital, but they were there because one of the, church members' sons or daughters was in it, that would get my attention. Because I have a daughter in it and I don't want to be there. You don't have a daughter and you're there. And you're engaged. And you're connected. And afterwards you're celebrating as though that's your kid. Unity. Unity that in love that helps us overcome our differences, that we don't have to agree on every political issue, and yet we can still be united in God's love. You see, when, when the church proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ, and the evidence that, 
that precedes it is the gospel of Jesus Christ transforming our lives. Church is never boring. Church is never boring. As a matter of fact, this would be weird, but I, I, I think it would be better than what some of us do. That if you came to Sunday morning worship, every time, and this is your question you have in your head, this is the prayer you prayed all week and that you're going to pray Sunday morning, and your prayer is, who's next? Who's next, God? Show me who's next. Who's next that you want me to build a relationship with, that you want me to get to know, that you want me to find out how I can walk with them and they can walk with me? Who's next? If you came every Sunday praying, who's next? Church is never going to be boring. Oh, it'll be scary because God might reveal that person you do not want to even talk to. It might be weird, it might be awkward, but it's the church being the church. It's never boring. Even as a church, even if we got it all right here, church would still not be boring because then we would be like, who's next out there? What's the group we haven't reached yet? Where have we not proclaimed the gospel? How can we connect? And we're constantly thinking and visioning and doing Well, Peter wraps up his sermon this way. He says, and now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance. Before, Peter wasn't so nice. If you go back and read chapter 2, he didn't, he didn't let them have the excuse of ignorance. As did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Two quick points on this. The first one is this. Proclaiming Jesus, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus must include the call to repentance. Must include the call to repentance. Now some of you are like, duh, that's obvious, right? Is it? See, the problem like we have in our world today is that you know we're, we're not supposed to like say anything negative about people because it might you know, hurt their self-esteem. They might feel bad about themselves. They might feel that we're being judgy. If that's the case, there is never a way that you can say call to repent because they can ask you, repent for what? 
See, a call to repentance also means we have to talk about sin. We have to talk about judgment. We have to talk about rebellion. But it's the call to repentance. It's turning from going in the wrong direction. And it means going towards Jesus. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. It's not, it's not simply turning away from sin. It's turning toward Jesus and following Jesus. If, if there's nothing wrong with me facing this way, why do I got to turn? Why do I got to repent? We must include repentance. One of the things that has weakened Christianity is that much of popular Christianity has tried to avoid that topic. And it's in the name, I get it, of being kind of seeker-sensitive and connecting with different groups. And I understand the need to connect. But at some point in time, at some point in time in that relationship building that you might be doing, it must be clear. It's the call to repentance. You see, it's good news, but it's, that doesn't mean it's nice news. It's good news because it's the rescue from the bad news. And there's a benefit. There's a benefit when we repent. There's a benefit when, our, when everybody in the church has repented and is turning towards Jesus. And the benefit is this. We're all moving in the same direction. We're all moving towards Jesus. We're all becoming more like Jesus. You see, what weakens the church, what weakens the church is when people who consider themselves Christians and consider themselves part of the church are not moving in the direction of Jesus. They're either sitting and saying, I got enough Jesus for me, it'll last the rest of my life, and maybe I'll get another scoop when I die. Or, worse, they're going in a different direction. And it, and it pulls away from all of those who are saying, we've repented, we're walking towards Jesus. We're becoming more like Jesus. You see, when we do that, when we do that, when we all agree that we are becoming more like Jesus, and we're moving in the same direction, we can be at different places. You can be way back here just starting out, or you can be really much closer. You, you, can, you can have your times when you, when you have your struggles, and you have your victories, because all your struggles and all your victories are going towards the same place, the same destination. We can walk with one another because we're all going in the same direction. This halfway repentance dilutes the church, weakens the church, and then it's hard for us to get the unity right, and then the world doesn't see the sign. It doesn't look at us and say, wow, wonder and amazement. Why is that happening among those people? 
See, the question isn't whether somebody's right or wrong when we're thinking about our, Christ, our Christianity or whether they're good or bad. Because everybody's going to be righter or wronger than you or gooder or badder than you. The question is, what direction are they moving? Someone who just became a Christian yesterday, they may still have a lot of badness they're overcoming. But are they moving in the right direction? And then the last thing that we see here, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time, is that proclaiming Jesus must include the blessing and hope of God's kingdom. It's not just talking about repentance. It's not having to talk about sin and judgment. But it's also talking about the blessing and hope of God's kingdom. And this isn't just talking about heaven. This is the experience of, 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 for lack of a better term, heaven on earth. Jesus' presence among us being in perfect community with him and with one another. And so we've seen his church obeys his word, knows his word. His church is spirit-empowered. His church is united in love. And now we've, we've added, emphasized, his church proclaims the gospel, proclaims the name of Jesus. And I don't like the terminology terminology Jesus-centered church, and I don't like the terminology Jesus first. Because people take that to mean Jesus in the center, but, you know, everything out here, it's all, it's, it can be whatever. And, you know, Jesus first is, okay, Jesus is first, but then I get to line up my other things after that. I think if we're going to be his church, we, we need to be a Jesus-focused church. Everything we do, every moment, is focused on him, is moving in the direction of becoming more like him, both as a body of Christ and as individual believers. A Jesus-focused church will be just like what we've been reading in Acts, wanting to know more, increase our knowledge of who Jesus is, to love Jesus more, which then leads to us loving one another more and proclaiming Jesus more, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ more. Jesus-focused churches, they're never boring. They're always looking for new ways, new places, new people. Who can we share with next? Who can we help next? Who can we build relationships next? Constantly asking God, where do you want us to go? What do you want us to do? Who do you want us to reach?